I want you to look here at the cover of this recent Time magazine. Have a good look at it. Those of you with really good eyes will be able to read the writing. It talks about it's Vegas, baby. I thought perhaps the words should have been, it's Vegas, Babylon. It's the story of Las Vegas. It's a story of wine, women, and song. It reminded me of the church service for today. Because the church service is about wine, women, and song. And uh, it's about the fifth chapter of the book of Daniel. And I'd like you to take your Bibles now and turn with me to Daniel chapter 5. And the topic is wine, women, and song. When the palace walls revealed a secret. And you'll need your Bibles today because this is a Bible reading, Bible believing church. Today, I'm going to talk about the overthrow of the world's greatest empire, the great superpower of its own day. You know, folks, every superpower has believed that it's going to outlast every other power. But in history, powers come and they go. And every superpower is destined to rise and destined to fall. We're going to talk about the overthrow of the world's greatest superpower. That was two and a half thousand years ago. I'm going to mention today a Persian king, Cyrus the Great, who was actually mentioned by name 150 or 200 years before he was born. Today we're going to take you into a great feast with a thousand lords, lots of ladies and concubines. We're going to talk about the mysterious writing on the wall. The terrifying writing on the wall that caused the king's knees to smite each other. So would you please notice this amazing chapter that talks about wine, women, and song. It's Daniel chapter 5 and verse 1 and onwards. Daniel chapter 5 verses 1 to 4. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Let's talk about this. The king, his name is Belshazzar. But for many, many years, this was a problem for believers in the Bible. Because every secular commentary all the cuneiform, the ancient cuneiform said that the last king of Babylon was a man by the name, does anybody know, of Nabonidus. But the Bible said the last king here was Belshazzar. But then one day, archaeologists discovered this clay tablet, which you know is not a little thing, but it's a clay inscription written with the cuneiform. And it talks about Nabonidus and his son, Belshazzar. And so what actually happened was this, and this was certainly a poke in the eye for the cynics and the atheists. 
What happened was this, that Nabonidus became tired of the pomp and the circumstances of the Babylonian court, and he retired and went out to his own palace out in the desert. And his son, Belshazzar, became the acting regent. And so, in fact, Belshazzar was the last king of the Babylonians. This great feast is a time certainly for great fasting. And while they're having this tremendous feast, disaster comes upon them. One of the popes actually said that gluttony was one of the seven deadly sins. And it is one of the seven deadly sins, not because the Pope said it, but because it is true. Without any question, the sin of gluttony is one of the great sins of the last days. And as one great theologian said, and I quoted his words when we talked from Daniel chapter 1, this great theologian said that great eaters and great drinkers are seldom great at anything else. Great eaters and great drinkers are seldom great at anything else. God can never use a glutton. And a man who is a great eater and a great drinker who is a glutton will never be used by God to preach his word or to advance the kingdom of God. The Bible tells us that this king passed over the line during this meeting and after he called for the golden and the silver vessels from Solomon's temple. It is interesting and every person ought to hear this because it is of tremendous practical import that while gluttony is one of the great sins of our age, so is the sin of drinking alcohol. Listen to these words. Listen. We often say the expression, oh, he lives by his wits. What do we mean by this? He lives by his wits. He survives by his wits. That means he survives by his intelligence. Therefore, how appropriate is the old proverb, when the wine is in, the wit is out. And that night, when the wine was in the king's stomach, the brain was dead. The greatest drug problem that we have in North America, in the United States, and in Australia, and in Canada, in fact, in the whole wide world, the greatest drug problem is the problem that so many of the senators have, and the congressmen have, and so many church members have. The greatest drug problem is alcohol. In these great United States of America, there are tens of millions of alcoholics. God only knows the tragedy of the broken minds, the broken bodies, the broken marriages, the broken souls that, occur, that are caused by the drinking of alcohol. And this king committed the unpardonable sin under the influence of alcohol. The Bible describes wrecked lives, lives that are wrecked because of alcohol. You read the story of Abigail and her drunken husband Nabal. And when he was drunk, he insulted the soldiers of David, and this brought about his death. He had a stroke or a heart attack from fear when he woke up and found the truth. 
The Bible talks about the drunkenness of Noah. Noah, who became drunk. And you read in Genesis the story of the depravity of one of his sons. It would not have happened if Noah had had a little more sanctification. You read the story of the drunkenness of Lot. What a terrible story that is. His own daughters were so depraved that they got their father drunk. And when he was drunk, they went in and slept with him and had children of him. The story of alcohol is a terrible story. Yet Christians defend it. I was out visiting a dear friend in a hospital here not very long ago. And there was a man who met me in the foyer. He said, he knew me. Hello, Pastor Carter. He said, I'm feeling mighty fine today. I said, why are you feeling so fine? He said, I've just been to Sabbath school and church. Oh, I said, you're a member of our church. Not this church, but a member of our... Yes, I'm a member. I'm an officer. He said, I've just had my four glasses of wine today on the Holy Sabbath. And so even in the church that professes to believe the truth, there are people who imbibe. Some time ago, I was driving in Thousand Oaks, went past the very spot where four young people died tragic, wasted lives. It was a graduation time, and one of the boys borrowed his father's car, a Mercedes-Benz, but it did not save him because he was driving probably at 100 miles an hour and killed himself and three others. Why doesn't somebody say something? Why don't the politicians say something? During the Second World War, says Charles Moran, who later became an English lord, but he was a doctor, he gave a commentary on the great hero Winston Churchill, the man of the century, the man who saved the world for freedom. And he also says that some of the great blunders of the Second World War were caused by the fact that Winston Churchill was often blind drunk. Don't confine it to Churchill. When he went over and met with Stalin and Roosevelt, the President of the United States, their meetings would go on late into the night and they would be drunk. And that's when they carved up the world. That's when Winston would say, well, why don't we give Poland to you Russians? Yes, Mr. Prime Minister. Roosevelt would say, but why don't we do give Greece? Why don't we keep? Yes, Mr. President. So millions of lives, millions of lives were set in concrete because of the drunkenness of their leaders. What have I seen in Russia? Goodness me, I wish every Christian who defends alcohol would wake up and go to Russia. You go to Ukraine, you see it there, but even worse in Russia, out of a population of 150 million, at least 20 or 30 million of those are registered alcoholics, and Vadim says the number actually is 70 million. Half of the people. You see on the streets, little children, we take the Trans-Siberian Express, children come knocking on the door when the train stops saying, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. Where's mom and dad? Drunk, 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 drunk. And the Orthodox Church imports more vodka and the surviving communists make factories and produce vodka. A curse upon it. A curse upon it. If you drink alcohol, I want to tell you you're being extremely foolish. Don't come to me and quote that Jesus turned the water. I know all those texts and I have the answers. Open your eyes. Look around. Wake up. Get smart. Don't be a dummy. It's the biggest curse. 
Now Nebuchadnezzar, who was the grandson, not the son, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, but you say the Bible says he's the son. My friend, Jesus was the son of David. That's why you've got to be careful when you go through the chronologies. When it says son, 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 it may mean the grandson or the great-grandson or the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson. This man was the son, grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. He was 30, around 36 years of age. He was drunk. When he's drunk, he wouldn't have done it, I think, if he'd been sober. But when the wine is in, the wit is out. And so he orders that the sacred vessels from the temple of God be brought so that he and his wives and his concubines and his harem and his lords can drink the wine. What was so wrong with taking the vessels from the temple? This man had never learned the difference between the secular and the sacred. All days were the same to Belshazzar. All things were the same. Oh, I don't keep the Sabbath day. Every day is the same. Thank you, Belshazzar. Thank you, Mr. Belshazzar. That's what he said. All things are the same. The profane and the holy, it's all the same. It makes no difference, especially when you're drunk. Verse 4, Daniel 5, verse 4, As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together, and his legs gave way. It was unexpected. If somebody had said to Belshazzar, watch out, it's coming, he would have said, ha, 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 who are you trying to scare? Who are you trying to scare? Unexpected. Judgment comes when we least expect it. Did you hear this? And the writing appeared over against the lampstand. Many commentators believe that this is the lampstand that was taken out of Solomon's temple. How foolish can you get? How impious can you be to take the lampstand? And notice what happens, verse 6. Daniel 5, verse 6. His face turned pale. He was so frightened that his knees knocked together, his legs gave way. He suffered from the awful sickness of fear, fear of the unknown. A true believer does not fear the future. Bill Gaither's great song, Because He Lives, I Can Face the Future. Because He Lives, All Fear Is Gone. But this was not so with Belshazzar, the young profligate, the young drunk, this foolish, powerful young man. Verse 7 and onwards, the king called out for the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple, and have a gold neck placed around his neck. And he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Keep reading on. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. Listen to me and let me tell you something. These verses illustrate my dearly beloved friends the futility of false religion. And most religion in the world, including America, is false religion. 
It is the religion of the astrologers, the new ages, and the mystics, and pagan and heathen religions that come to us from around the globe. But those religions in the day of judgment are impotent to save. There is only one true religion because there's only one true God. And uh, the verse goes on to say, verse 9, So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. This, my friends watching on television and in my wonderful church here on the Sabbath day, this is a picture of the man without God facing certain death. Contrast Belshazzar with Paul. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. But here is Belshazzar, terrified of the future, terrified in the presence of God. Verses 10 and onwards tell us about the beneficial influence of women. Notice this, men. Verse 10, the queen or the queen mother, Nebuchadnezzar's widow, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles came into the banquet hall. O king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed, don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. Call for Daniel. Just when the Second World War was about to break out and England was floundering under the leadership of Chamberlain, the newspapers put out a great sign and the sign said, call for Winston. He's our last hope. And the Queen, and the queen says with great wisdom, call for Daniel. Call for Daniel. And so they go out and they shout, Daniel, Daniel, Daniel. And Daniel comes. He wasn't in the party. Daniel believed more in fasting than in feasting. Daniel knew that drunkenness and idolatry Feasting and falling keep close company. And an old man comes in, but he's ramrod straight because he's God's man. He's lived a life of temperance. He comes in, he's God's man. He's in his 80s. And there is this young scoundrel is 36 years of age. Let me tell you folks something. If you get a container, I've done this for fun, do it sometime. Get a glass container, doesn't matter what it's made of, and put a bunch of pebbles in it. Little pebbles and big pebbles. And give it a good shake up. Shake it and shake it and shake it. You know what happens? Have you ever done this experiment? How good that you can come to this church and have a lesson in physics as well as a sermon. <laughs> you get it. Haven't you ever done this? Well, do this. You get a container, put big pebbles, little pebbles, 
and you give it a good shake. And if you shake it and shake it and shake it, the little pebbles go to the bottom and the big pebbles come to the top. Always the big pebbles come to the top when they're given a good shake. Daniel had been given many, many good shakes and the whole of the Babylonian Empire was being shaken. Belshazzar went to the bottom, but God's man came to the top. God's man will always come to the top. Doesn't matter what people do to you. I've had a rough, rough week. The Carter Report Ministry is faced, is facing, well, no, we're okay. But we have, we often have real challenges. But I want you to know that if we stay true to God, we won't go down to the bottom, we'll come to the top. That's what you've got to, got to realize. It doesn't matter what anybody does to you and you're all shook up. When the old devil makes sure that you're all shook up, be glad because the little ones go to the bottom and the big ones come to the top. So Daniel comes in and he's a man sent from God. Verse 17. Oh, no, start at verse 13. So Daniel was brought before the king. The king said to him, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles the king brought from Judah? I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have inside intelligence and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it now I've heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck. and You'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Notice what Daniel says. In the presence of this young king who has the power of life and death over him. Here he is. He's in his 80s. Verse 17, then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Did you notice he wouldn't accept the gifts? Daniel wasn't in the Jesus business. The Jesus business? I was doing a radio program on a big radio station here, Christian station. The interviewer, interviewer said to me, John, this is the real Jesus biz. So what do you mean? He said, this is, this is another, just another type of business. He said, we teach you what to say, tell you how to say it. This is the Jesus biz. And it brings in more money than anything else. You know, there are some churches where people won't serve unless they're paid. Did you know this? You've got to pay Sabbath school teachers. Got to pay everybody who has a part on the church. So if you want something done, you've got to pay for it. You know why? Those people are a part of the Jesus business, but not the real business that Jesus does. Daniel wasn't in it for money. He said, you can keep it. I don't want your gold. I don't want your money because I'm a child of God. But he says, nevertheless, I'll tell you what's going to happen to you. He's not terrified in the presence of the king. Let me tell you something. A lot of people are afraid of authority. Some of you folks are like that. Afraid of state authority afraid of ecclesiastical authority. Oh, but he's such and such a great person. Listen, my friend. You don't need to be afraid of ecclesiastical authority or civil authority if you have God in your heart. The words were said of John the Baptist, he could stand fearless and erect in the presence of earthly monarchs because he'd bowed low before the king of kings. And this man, Daniel, had bowed low 
He wasn't afraid of people. He wasn't crawling to people. No, he was God's man. He spoke with authority. Verse 18, now he looks this young king in the eye. Verse 18, Daniel 5. O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. Daniel knew what he was talking about. Nebuchadnezzar was dead, but he had outlived the king. And Nebuchadnezzar had become his friend and his confidant because Nebuchadnezzar had become a child of God. He'd become a born-again child of God. So he's talking not from history books. He's talking from experience. He says, I know what happened to him. But then you read on. Verse 22. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand and wrote the inscription. I want you to think of the words, though you knew all this. If he hadn't known, wouldn't have been so bad. But if you know, you're in a different category. Great light brings great privileges and great responsibilities. We will be judged according to our opportunities. Jesus spoke about the person who knew and didn't do and said he's going to be beaten with many stripes, whereas the person who did not know will be beaten with few stripes. The more you know, the more the responsibility. Great privileges bring us either great rewards or great punishments. Though you knew all these things, I say to you, think of our privileges. We have the Bible. You belong to a church, thanks be to God, that preaches the gospel of righteousness by faith. You've heard it, not once, but time after time after time. We have the church. There are some people who almost look down on the church. That is because they're heathen or pagan men. But the church is the body of Christ and we must respect the church, the body of Christ. We have freedom of religion. We can come to church without people shooting at us. We have prosperity. What will God say? Though you had all this, though you knew all this. One great friend of mine who's a great theologian said, sin is so deceptive that we are impervious to cartloads of admonition and good advice. God did not leave Belshazzar in the dark. He gave him the example of his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar. 
but he was too smart. Verses 22 and onwards. Verse 22 and onwards. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, a bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand uh, that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Now, he's there in this banquet hall. There are thousands of people present. And Daniel, standing before the king, and his voice is carried to the furthest nook and cranny. This is the inscription that was written. Meany, meany, tackle, parson, or peris. This is what these words mean. Meany, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tackle, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Paris, or parson, the plural. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The sentence of the court. Numbered. God has numbered your days. Weighed. Weighed in the balances. When he was weighed in the balances, he was found a lightweight. Many people who think they understand the gospel don't understand the truth about the judgment. They say, because we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, God is not interested in the character, in the character or in the life. I'm covered by the blood of Jesus, and therefore how I live is of small consequences because of the abundant grace of God. That idea is false, erroneous, deceptive, and foolish. In the judgment, we are not judged by our faith. We are not saved by the grace that lives within us. We are judged according to how we have lived. Because what sort of faith I have is demonstrated by my lifestyle. God doesn't care for empty, pious words. God is not interested in the person who can say the most flowery prayer. God is not the person who can speak in the most sanctimonious style. God is not interested in the person who takes all of the religious titles to himself. We're going to be weighed in the balances. And when Belshazzar was weighed in the balances, he was found to be a lightweight, empty, superficial, a bag of wind. The sentence of the court, numbered, weighed, and the end has come. I must answer this question, where was grace? No grace for Belshazzar? None at all. No grace for Belshazzar? Where is the grace of God? God showed grace to Nebuchadnezzar. But Nebuchadnezzar did not have the light that Belshazzar had. Though you knew all this, God is gracious, God is merciful, God is kind, God is loving. But Belshazzar had stepped over the line and committed the unpardonable sin. The taking of the goblets from the sanctuary 
was the last straw. The poet said there's a line that is crossed by rejecting the Lord where the call of his spirit is lost. As you travel along with the pleasure-mad throng, like they do in Las Vegas, have you counted, have you counted the cost where the call of his spirit is lost? The Spirit of God had spoken long to the heart of Belshazzar, but he knew it all, and he rejected the Spirit of God. I would remind you that God is long-suffering. I've told you, perhaps you've heard the story, of the atheist who went to Hyde Park, set himself up on a box, took off his watch, and before a vast crowd of people, he held up the watch, there's an old blind Christian standing down the front. He said, oh, blind, foolish man, I'm going to prove to you in this great crowd that there is no God. He said, I defy you, if you exist, to strike me dead in 60 seconds. He held up the watch, and the seconds ticked by. And when the minute was past, he turned with a broad smile and with a swagger of impertinence to the crowd and said, there, I proved it to you. There is no God. The old blind Christian stood up and said, the poor fool, he thinks he can exhaust the patience of God in 60 seconds. He's got a lot to learn. God was patient with Belshazzar, but he passed over the line. And I tell the story about the person who wrote to the editor of a Christian journal, Dear Editor, ask your Christian readers to explain this. I prepared the soil on Sabbath. I tilled the land on Sabbath. I planted on Sabbath. I worked on the Sabbath. I did all these things on the Sabbath. I weeded on the Sabbath. And I harvested on the Sabbath. I got the best crop of potatoes in May. And somebody wrote back a week or two later, a Christian, and said, Dear editor, would you please tell your potato man that God doesn't settle all his accounts in May. But he does. Do not despise the grace of God and think the grace of God will go on in our lives forever. Amen and amen. There's a line that is crossed by rejecting the Lord. And if this man had been a little wiser, he would not have touched alcohol because alcohol threw him over the line. So there is Belshazzar, still shaking, still trembling. At that moment in history, outside are the armies of Cyrus the Great. And Cyrus did not have the patience of the Lord. You read on, verse 29, Daniel 5. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck. And he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Outside was Cyrus. Let me tell you some amazing things. In the book of Isaiah that goes back to the 8th century B.C., and these events were taking place in the 6th century B.C., Cyrus was mentioned by name. He was called my anointed, the man of my choosing. The prophet Isaiah said of the river Euphrates, or rather Jeremiah said, Jeremiah 50 and 51, a drought is upon her waters. The prophet Isaiah said, Cyrus will go before me and the gates will not be locked. Written 150 years, 200 years before this happened. 
a man mentioned by name before he was born. And what Cyrus did, he drained the river Euphrates. Xenophon tells us that, one of the great historians. He marched his soldiers under the walls of Babylon. They waded chest deep in the muddy, turbulent waters of the Euphrates. They could have all been destroyed. They came to the great river gates. And for the first time in history, the gates had not been locked. He burst open the gates. Read on. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. That night, the blood of the king mingled with the wine. You who love your wine, beware. The blood of the king mingled with the wine. This is an illustration of the last days. The prophets in the New Testament say that the last days will come unexpectedly. Just as Babylon was overthrown, so this present age is going to be overthrown. Just as the last night of Babylon was a night of drunkenness and revelry and party going and feasting, so it will be in the church and in the world. And then comes Sudden destruction. The Bible teaches it. It happens when the world and the church desecrate sacred things and desecrate the holy things of a holy God. As is taught in Revelation 13 and onwards, then judgment comes. So what is the conclusion of the whole matter? Number one, one can go too far. Stop now. Number two, there is a judgment day. Unbelievers and godless men and women in the church and in the world do not believe in the judgment. There is a judgment day. Number three, there is a difference between the sacred and the profane, between the holy and the unholy. And we will be judged according to the light we have. And some of the greatest disasters in our lives and in the world have been influenced by alcohol. The last great truth I would have come into your minds today is this. God's man, God's woman, will survive it all. And they will come out on top. Strive by the grace of God. You say, but striving is works. Oh, maybe. Some of us need to do a little bit. Jesus said, strive to enter in through the narrow gate. Heaven is not for the lazy. Strive to enter in. And if you and I, by the grace of God, cast ourselves upon his mercy and acknowledge the king of heaven, we shall not perish. We shall not end up down the bottom. We shall come out on top. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Shall we pray? Let us all kneel. I want to thank you, even though it's summer, we've had a mass exodus. We had problems today with the cables. By the grace of God, we've had a victory. And thanks be to God and thanks be to you, to you, those of you who are so faithful and who have a vision. Now, Father, we thank you for this great story from the book of Daniel. We thank you that this man who was in the courts when he was 17 or 18, whatever it was, glory be to God, he lived through some 70 years of political intrigue, danger around every corner. 
and survived. We thank you that we can be your survivors, that we're not going to end up down on the bottom of the pile, but by the grace of God, we will end up on top because that's where Jesus wants us to be. We're on our knees today, our Father, thinking of the lessons that we've learned from this amazing chapter of the Bible. We thank you. Help us, dear Father, today to acknowledge the God of heaven and to learn the difference between the sacred and the profane, to turn from alcohol, which is the greatest curse the human race has probably ever known, and the most defended by Christians, by communists, by atheists, by unbelievers, except the Muslims. Teach us to have a faith that in this area is better than the faith of bin Laden. Help us to have a faith that transcends drunkenness and drinking. Help us to remember that our bodies are the temple of God. That is the old saying is, if you drink, don't drive. Help us to realize we're all driving through life. And therefore, we should abstain from all alcoholic beverages. But help us, dear Father, like Daniel, to acknowledge you. As we're praying in our church today, with our heads bowed, our eyes closed, on our knees, with our hearts open and uplifted, how many would like to say, I want to serve Daniel's God, and I want to be like Daniel. Would you raise your hand? Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. My Father, bless these upraised hands that represent upraised hearts, these wonderful people, my church members, my friends. Bless them. May every person here, when the judgment comes, may we be found not to be lightweights but heavyweights because you're standing with us. So we thank you and worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.